life for us. We, as uh, Matt said, we are in this series about prayer and the bulk of this term. We are focusing on prayer, teaching on prayer on Sundays and then gathering to pray during the week. Uh, However, we started the term with a couple of weeks in a series we're calling Enjoying God, and I'm picking that up again this morning. This coming week, we haven't got any prayer gatherings, having a break over half term. And then at the end of, uh, of uh, the year, just before Christmas, we'll come back and do another couple of sessions about enjoying God. But these things are very much connected. Enjoying God is very much connected to more prayer, because the more that we enjoy God, the more that we will pray, and the more that we pray, the more that we'll enjoy God. Those two things are just inextricably linked. It's as, as you spend time with God, you come to enjoy Him more, and as you enjoy God more, you want to spend more time with Him. So praying and enjoying God go hand in hand, and we are called to pray, and we are called to enjoy God in all circumstances. And that means not only in the good times, but also in the challenging ones. And today, I want to speak on the theme of in every pain, we can enjoy the Son's presence. In every pain, we can enjoy the Son's presence. This series is based on a book called Enjoying God by Tim Chester. And uh, this morning is taken from a chapter of the same, same title, In Every Pain, We Can Enjoy the Son's Presence. And my aim, my prayer this morning, is that the Word of God in Scripture, through Tim Chester, through me, will help to pastor us in any area of pain you might be experiencing. Because everybody has pain in their lives. Every life has pain in it. What is yours? Might be the pain of bereavement. Someone you love has died. Might be the pain of failure. Things you wanted to do haven't worked out. It might be the faint, the the pain of disappointments, maybe a relationship that didn't work out, maybe something you've longed for which hasn't happened. might be the pain caused by shame, something you're so conscious of, so embarrassed by. How do you deal with the pain in your life? What is your coping mechanism? What's your coping mechanism for pain? Three broad coping mechanisms, denial, displacement, and dependency. Denial is we just deny that there is any pain, there is any problem, and just crack on. Displacement is where you fill your life with something else. Last week, as a family, we watched The Shawshank Redemption, haven't seen for years, such an awesome film, in which Andy Lafrayne, the, uh, the, the chief character, he, he says in the end, you either get busy living or you get busy dying. It's just kind of you fill your life you, with displacement activities, get busy living get, or get busy dying. Maybe that's your te- tactic to deal with pain or maybe it's dependency that you depend on ice cream or you depend on booze or you depend on Netflix or you depend on a relationship. That's how you deal with your pain. Now I want to suggest to you this morning that the best way to deal with your pain is to turn to Jesus Christ. He's the best antidote. And as we get into that, I remember I've forgotten to take up the offering and collect the Connect cards. So if the baskets will go around, if you have an offering, please give that. Please chuck in the Connect cards, whether you've written on them or not, and the pens as well. And as we're doing that, I'll pray, and then we'll get into this theme. Jesus, I pray that you would be with us this morning. I pray that, thank you that you are with us. We know that. We don't have to pray, be with us, because we know that you are. But I pray that we would know you with us, that we'd know Christ with us, 
we'd know the words of Jesus being spoken into our lives and that wherever, wherever it is in our lives that we carry pain, that we'd hear your words spoken to us this morning, that you'd, you would pastor us this morning, Jesus. And I ask that as I speak and as I use Tim Chester's material and as we turn to Scripture, that there would be a work of pastoring that happens today in our souls, that we would know that we have met with the Savior and he has been kind and tender towards us. In your name I ask it, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Why is turning to Jesus the best antidote to our pain? Two reasons. The first reason is because Jesus is entirely consistent. He's entirely consistent. How do we know what Jesus is like? What is Jesus like? Jesus is just as he is described in the Bible. He's just as he is described in the Gospels where we read about Jesus in his earthly ministry. He's just like that. Jesus is tender, he's kind, he's strong, he's merciful, he's resolute. That's what Jesus was like when he walked on the earth, and that's what he is like still. And more than that, he is now reigning in heaven. This is what it says in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 1 verse 3. The Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. What is Jesus like? He is the one who is sustaining all things by his word of power. People change, but Jesus doesn't. What Jesus was 2,000 years ago when he walked on the earth, he is now. And he reigns in power. And this means that Jesus is different from anyone, anything else. And when you're in pain, what you need is to turn to someone who is reliable. And Jesus is the one who is unfailingly reliable. He is entirely consistent. He's unchanging. And so he's the one to whom we should turn. The second reason why Jesus is the one to whom we should turn is because he is able to fully sympathize with us. When you're in pain, you want to go to someone who can understand your pain. You want to go to someone who can relate to what you're experiencing. Ideally, you want to go to somebody who you don't even really have to explain the pain you are in, but someone who just gets it because they can relate, because they sympathize. And if you're in pain, you go to somebody, maybe even a good friend, maybe even somebody who's generally fairly wise and mature and godly, but find that they can't sympathize with the pain you're in. That's a deeply frustrating experience which can just compound your pain when, when well-meaning people try and speak into your pain, but don't do that in a way which really sympathizes, empathizes with what you're experiencing. It just, it just makes the problem worse rather than better, doesn't it? But Jesus is the one who is able to fully sympathize with us. God in himself could not feel human pain. God is so different, so utterly other. But God in Christ took on human flesh. God became human. Jesus, fully God, also fully man. This means that Jesus experienced human weakness. Jesus tasted human pain. And the wonder, the miracle of the resurrection is that at the resurrection, Jesus didn't kind of slough off human flesh and become just a spirit being. No, Jesus was resurrected 
as a man. Jesus died as a man and was raised to new life as a man, fully God, fully man. And that means that now a man reigns in heaven. God has taken on human flesh eternally. And this means that Jesus is still able to sympathize with us. This is what it says a little bit further on in Hebrews, Hebrews 4, verse 14. Since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. The point of a priest is that a priest is someone who is able to close the gap between God and humans. A priest is able to represent people before God because the priest knows what it is to be a weak, failing human. This is what it says in Hebrews 5, verse 2. A priest is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since himself, he himself is subject to weakness. Now, Jesus is our perfect priest. Verse 7 of Hebrews 5. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. In order to be able to save us, God himself had to take on human flesh and experience human weakness, human pain, human suffering. That's what Jesus did. In Jesus, God made himself vulnerable. Became vulnerable to pain, became vulnerable to weakness, became vulnerable to suffering. And so what we have in Jesus is one who is utterly reliable, eternally consistent, and one who is able to fully relate to us. Now, it might be that you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, and you might not even really short, might not even be sure that you really believe in God, but you'll believe in something, or you'll have a concept of what the God is like who you don't believe in. The God I want you to believe in is a God who is revealed to us through Jesus. What is this God like? He is like Jesus. He is Jesus. He's the one who is eternally consistent and reliable, and the one who is fully able to sympathize with us. What then does it look like for us to come to Jesus with our pain? We're going to look at three examples, all from the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be looking at quite a bit of Scripture this morning. Some amazing stories which show us what Jesus is like and how he can help us in our pain. The first example is that to those who feel loss, Jesus says, don't cry. If you want to follow along, page 1035 in these Bibles, I'm going to read from verse 11 of chapter 7. Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. Now, this is a story that shows Jesus' amazing power, 
This is an extraordinary miracle. This young man is dead. He's about to be buried. And Jesus comes and speaks a word, and he comes back to life. That's an extraordinary demonstration of power. But it also shows Christ's compassion. You see, the story tells us that this young man was the only son of a widow. And this means that this woman was doubly afflicted. In any culture, any context, to lose both your husband and your son is a tragedy beyond measure. But in the culture of Jesus' time, it's a, a, a double tragedy because for a woman in that context, really the only way she could survive economically was by having male relatives who would provide for her. That's how the culture worked. And so this woman had lost her husband, who was a provider, and now she's lost her son. And this means that she is destitute. She's destitute relationally. She's destitute in terms of her standing in community. She's destitute economically. Her, her life is ruined because her husband has died and now her son has died. She's got no income and no hope. And then Jesus appears and it says that his heart went out to her. That's a beautiful phrase. You know, it's a phrase we use still, isn't it? If we really are empathizing with somebody and you can't really express the words, but you say, say, my heart goes out to you. There's that sense of emotion. My heart goes out to you. And Jesus' heart went out to this woman. It's not just that Jesus chooses to help her. It's not just that he chooses to do an amazing miracle to demonstrate his power. No, what Jesus is showing here is his deep compassion for her. It's his compassion for her that causes him to act. And he says to her, don't cry. That's interesting because if you're weeping in a time of loss and somebody says, don't cry, often that can sound, rather than encouraging, that can sound like a rebuke. Oh, stop crying, pull yourself together. That's not what Jesus is doing here. What Jesus is doing is speaking a word of comfort. Don't cry. Why? Because my heart's gone out to you and I'm able to do something about this. Now, if your pain is the pain of loss. Whatever that is, maybe it is that somebody you love has died. Maybe it's some other kind of loss, something you feel that sense of deep bereavement about. If your pain is the pain of loss, come to Jesus. When Jesus raises this young man to life, the crowd say, God has come to help his people. Yes, Jesus has come to help his people. He's come to help us. God's heart has gone out to us. This is what Tim Chester says. Everything will be all right. Maybe not today. Maybe not tomorrow. But a day of restoration is coming. Jesus is not up in heaven uninterested in your life. He didn't abandon us. He's the same person he was 2,000 years ago. Imagine the moment when Jesus sees this widow. Imagine the look on his face. That is how he looks when he sees your distress. And he says, don't cry. Let's take a moment to be silent before the Lord. And if your pain is a pain of loss, as we're quiet together, turn to Jesus and ask him to come and speak a word of you, over you which dries your tears.
Second example of pain is that to those who feel shame, Jesus says, go in peace. Shame can be utterly crippling. Shame is a burden you drag around with you everywhere. It's that gaping wound which you're always trying to bandage and cover up. It's the thing which you are terrified that other people will call attention to, and so is the thing that you are most conscious of. It's that thing you live with, that kind of uh, uh, siren that you think is going off, flashing over your head the whole time, and you don't want others to notice it, but you're sure that they do. We're going to look at two stories about shame, two women who experienced shame for very different reasons. One woman felt shame because of the things that she had done, another who felt shame because of what had happened to her. The first is in Luke 7, starting at verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him tens of thousands of pounds and the other a couple of thousand pounds. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. There are a lot of things in this story where the culture is so different from ours. We don't wash people's feet when they come for dinner. We don't lie down to eat our food. We don't have open houses so that when we're having a dinner party, people just wander in off the street, as seems to happen here. But we can get the pitch of what's going on. There's this sinful woman who suddenly appears at the table. And historically, traditionally, it's been assumed that she's a prostitute. She might have been, but whether or not she was, she was somebody who had a reputation for living in sin. She was socially unclean, untouchable. To come into contact with her would be to become personally contaminated yourself. And Jesus not only comes into contact with her, but he lingers in contact with her as she weeps and anoints his feet. And she shows complete and total humility before Jesus. In Middle Eastern culture, the feet were dirty, literally, and, and uh, metaphorically. It's why you reclined at the table with your feet as far from the table as possibly they could be, because feet are dirty, and you don't want them where you're eating. And 
Only somebody who was below you would touch your feet. A servant would wash your feet. Simon didn't wash Jesus' feet. He was too proud. He's not going to wash Jesus' feet. It's not a job for him. This woman shows total humility in the attention she pays to Jesus' feet and complete adoration of him. And Jesus shows her total acceptance. It's an extraordinary encounter. Even with our vast cultural differences from this era in time, we can sense how scandalous it was that this untouchable woman, the woman that people crossed the street to avoid, who nobody wanted to get near, that she was there at the dinner table weeping over Jesus, washing his feet with her tears, with perfume, wiping it with her hair, just a scandalous scene. But as she washes Jesus' feet, he beautifully washes away her shame. He says to her, go in peace. That beautiful Jewish word, Hebrew word, shalom, the shalom of God. It's where you come out of turmoil, out of chaos, into a place of harmony, peacefulness, rest, relationship with God and with other people. What shame does, it creates turmoil, creates chaos. If you're living with shame, it makes life chaotic. This woman had a chaotic life. All her relationships were broken. Her relationship with God, her relationship with people, her relationship with the whole world was in turmoil and chaos. And Jesus brings her peace. He gives her peace. He speaks peace over her. Go in peace. Shalom to you. You're forgiven. You are made whole. Wow. Next story is a very different woman. Start in verse 42 of chapter 8 of Luke. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Another woman, another gaping wound of shame. This time it's not her fault. She's got a persistent gynecological problem and no one can help. Now, in any culture, any period of history... That kind of gynecological problem is a horrible thing to endure. But in this culture, this context, it was deeply socially isolating. The whole Jewish framework of understanding is that blood either cleanses or blood contaminates. The blood of sacrifice cleanses, deals with sin. Other kinds of bleeding is contaminating, makes unholy, makes untouchable. And for this woman, because she was bleeding constantly, year after year, she was socially unclean. She would have been excluded from normal relationships, normal community. She would have been unable to join in worship. And to be touched by her would be to be contaminated yourself. No one wanted this woman touching them, because if she touched you, that made you unclean as well. Her shame became your shame. And so for her to come up behind Jesus and to deliberately grasp the edge of his cloak would have been seen as an assault. 
that she was deliberately contaminating Jesus. She was smearing her shame, her uncleanness onto him. But that's not the way that Jesus sees it. He sees it for what it is. He sees it as a desperate cry for help. And she comes and it says that she trembles before him. You can imagine why. It's because she's so exposed. This woman is in the place of unbelievable total vulnerability because at this moment, Jesus could expose her to even more shame in the face of the crowd. He could have done so easily and would have been seen as right to, to have exposed her to shame and to essentially have destroyed her as a human being. Just as some people today are destroyed by social media shaming, this woman could have been just destroyed by Jesus at this point. But instead of destroying her, he commends her. He says to her, your faith has healed you. Well done. And then he blesses her and says, go in peace. With this woman, just like the sinful woman, he brings her out of her chaos, brings her out of her shame, and brings her into shalom, brings her into peace, brings her into wholeness, brings her into restoration, brings her into health, brings her into life. He restores what is broken. Now, if your pain is because of shame, turn to Jesus. Whether it's something that you've done, or something that's been done to you, or something that's just happened to you as it did for this woman, Jesus is the one who can heal the wound of your shame. He's the one who can bring you into peace. He's the one who can bring you into reconciliation. This is what Tim Chester says. You may be struggling with an eating disorder. You may look at porn. You may have a criminal conviction no one in the church knows about. Or it might be how much you spend on shoes or that last week you ate a whole tub of ice cream in one sitting. What's your secret? What's your shame? If you trust Jesus and he says to you, your sins are forgiven, go in peace. Again, let's pause for a moment. And if your pain is because of shame, bring it to Jesus. Reach out, touch his feet, grasp the edge of his cloak. And ask him to speak a word of peace into your life. last example of pain is that to those who are anxious, Jesus says, don't be afraid. I think everyone has a fear of something. Everybody's got a fear of something. It might be a trivial thing, a fear of spiders. It might be something much more profound. Some people bury their fears deep. For some people, the most frightening thing is to think that anybody might think they're afraid. I'm too tough to have any fears. And actually, the thing you're most fearful of is somebody might know how afraid you are. It's like chief vital statistics in the Asterix cartoons who says, the only thing we have to fear is the sky falling on our heads, something that's impossible, but something he lives in terror of the whole time. He's completely consumed and trapped by his fears. 
Now, if you are a parent, you will know that once you become a parent, our fears tend to center around our children. What's going to happen to them? Anxieties for them. And that's kind of necessary. It's a basic parental instinct because if you don't exercise some parental care for your kids, it is quite likely that they're going to have some accidents and some bad stuff's going to happen. The world's a dangerous place. But parental fears for our children can also be crippling. It can actually become very neurotic. And the reality is that as human beings, we're not very good at interpreting statistics accurately. What happens, especially in our day of mass media and worldwide awareness is that we have the worst things in the world funneled into our view the whole time. And we tend to take the worst case scenario and assume it's the normal case scenario. And so as parents, you're terrified about allowing your six-year-old to go to the corner shop on their own because if they do, they will inevitably get kidnapped by a paedophile, abused and murdered. Even though statistically that almost certainly will not happen. And we're terrified about allowing our kids to play out on the streets because if we do, they will definitely get run over, even though they almost certainly will not. It's just how we respond to fear. But sometimes our worst fears are realized. And there's a story here in Luke 8 which tells us about it concerns a man named Jairus, and it's the story that's wrapped around the story of the woman with bleeding who Jesus heals. Start at verse 41 of Luke chapter 8. A man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. Then drop down to verse 39. While Jesus was still speaking, 49, sorry. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus the synagogue leader, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Jairus' daughter is sick to the point of death. His only daughter, his precious 12-year-old daughter, and his last hope is Jesus. No one else has been able to help. No one else has been able to heal. He runs out of here. Jesus is in town. Jesus is the miracle worker. He goes to find Jesus, but Jesus gets waylaid by this wretched woman who's had this gynecological problem for the past 12 years, and Jesus gets involved with her. He starts talking with her, ministering to her, and you can imagine Jairus just jumping up and down with fear and anxiety. My daughter is about to die. Why, Jesus, are you wasting your time with this wretched woman when my daughter is so sick? Jesus keeps on talking to the crowd and to this woman. And then as Jesus is still talking with her and talking with the crowd, the worst thing happens. In this case, the worst thing does happen. Someone comes from Jairus' house and says, don't bother the teacher anymore. 
your daughter is dead. You can imagine the noose of terror tightening around Jairus' neck as Jesus lingers talking to this wretched woman and doesn't come to see his daughter. And then as the message comes, your daughter is dead. And Jesus says to Jairus, don't be afraid. Now, you know what it's like if you're suffering from anxiety, if you've got worries, if you've got fears. Very often, the worst thing that anybody can say to you is, don't worry, don't be anxious, don't be afraid. Especially if your anxieties, your worries, your fears are well-grounded. And if you're feeling anxious or worried or fearful, you will think your anxieties are well-grounded, no matter how much they may or might not be. And somebody says to you, don't worry. And your response is, don't tell me not to worry. I am worried and I should be worried. Have you seen the stuff I've got to worry about? And so Jesus saying to Jairus, don't be afraid, might not seem a very helpful thing for him to say. But Jesus' don't be afraid isn't a bear, don't be afraid. It's not don't be afraid on its own. What Jesus says is, don't be afraid, just believe. Jairus, believe, believe, believe in me, believe in my power to change this situation. And Jesus would say the same thing to us. If the area of pain you're carrying is because of anxiety, because of fear, because of of worry, Jesus would say, believe in me. He'd look you in the eyes and say, believe in me. Bring me your fears. Bring me your anxieties. Bring me your worries. Now, what can Jesus do about them? Well, Jesus is the one who has the broad enough shoulders to carry the worries, the fears, the anxieties of the world. Why? Because Jesus is the one who has defeated death. Jesus has himself faced death, has tasted death, endured death. On the cross, Jesus carried the weight of all the world's sin, all the world's fears. He carried death itself, and then he broke through it and came to life again. Jesus has triumphed over what is most frightening to us. And that means that we can bring whatever is causing us fear, whatever is causing us anxiety, whatever is causing us worry, we bring it to the cross, we bring it to Jesus and say, Jesus, I believe, I choose to believe, help me to believe in my unbelief. Let me believe that you are the one who is able to carry these fears. You're able to carry me, even though I'm so bound up with this anxiety, this worry. You can carry it. You can speak a word over me. Don't be afraid. This is what Tim Chester says. Jesus offers us life after death, eternal life. The worst that can happen has become the gateway to life. Bad things still happen, sometimes very bad things. But we don't need to be afraid. Jesus says to us today in the midst of our fears, don't be afraid. Just believe. Again, let's pause for a moment, be silent before God. And if your pain is around worry, anxiety, fear, dare to bring it before him now and ask him to speak over you a word of courage, a word of comfort.
you know, we so quickly start to experience compassion fatigue. So many problems in the world just began to wash over us. I was in the car with Nancy, my 18-year-old, who's volunteering in the church office this year, going up to the office the other day, and we had the news on, and there was an item, and it said, if you've got children with you, you might want to turn the radio off this next report because of what it contains. And I realized a few minutes later that we hadn't listened at all. We were just talking and laughing in the car while this account of atrocity was being related on the news. And that's because we're so used to it. We've heard so much. And we can't carry it. We can't carry the weight of the world's problems. We can't carry the weight of children being blown up in Syria or kids dying in Libya or 39 migrants suffocating in a truck. We can't carry the weight of the world's pain. We get compassion fatigue. It washes over us or we just turn it off and stop looking. Jesus isn't like that. Jesus is eternally consistent, entirely entirely reliable, and he is the one who is able to sympathize utterly. Your pain isn't one problem too many for Jesus. He hasn't reached compassion fatigue before he gets to you. No, he's able to carry all our burdens. He did that in the stories we've looked at this morning. Now that Jesus is glorified, now he's in heaven, now he's the one who does sustain all things by his words of power. He's the one who is able to reach out and help us all. And Jesus would speak over us this morning, whatever your area of pain is, and say, don't cry. Go in peace. Don't be afraid. Lord, I pray that we would know these words spoken over us today. Jesus, wherever it is in our lives that we carry pain, that we know what it is to come to you, to have you look us in the eye and speak to us, speak hope to us, speak wholeness to us, speak reconciliation to us, speak comfort to us, speak courage to us. Spirit of God, would you work in our hearts all that Jesus has for us this day. Would you help us to lay our pains before Jesus at the cross and know the reality of his healing power, healing words spoken to our hearts, spoken deep into us so that we might be whole. In your name I ask it, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's come back into worship, and then we'll come and break bread. And uh, something I'd love us to do this morning, as we break bread each week, we say this, if you're coming to take the bread and the wine, we're coming to Jesus. As you physically take a little bit of bread and a little bit of wine and take that and eat that, it's a sign of faith. I'm coming to you, Jesus. I believe in you. I believe in the power of your death and the power of your resurrection. But this is also a great moment for us to minister to one another. Jesus can minister to us direct through the power of his Holy Spirit. But he also works through his body. That's how it works, that we as the people of God minister Jesus to each other. And so if there's something this morning where you know, yeah, I'm feeling feeling pain, and I need to know the, the tenderness, the kindness of Jesus, we would love to pray for you. We'd love to lay hands upon you and minister the grace of Christ to you. So there's loads of us who can do, love to do that. Just grab somebody, grab one of us at the front or somebody else you can trust and just say, would you pray for me? Pray that I might know 
Jesus at work in my life. I'd know him lifting off my pain and bringing me into healing and wholeness. Can we do that?